in our passage for this morning, which is chapter 3, verses 8 through 13, and I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow. He's thinking about what the skeptics say. Know this first of all, in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of Jesus coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, everything continues just like it always has. Peter says, the Lord's not slow on the switch. He's not slow about his coming. Right on schedule. Never late. Beloved, with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years like one day. And the Lord is not slow about the promise of his coming, as some count slowness and some do. But he's patient toward all y'all, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, unexpectedly, unannounced, um, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, the earth shall soon dissolve like snow, the sun forbear to shine, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed, it's all temporary, what sort of people ought you be in holy conduct and godliness? You shouldn't be worshiping your toys, for sure. Looking for and reveling in the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat. We've been built for something much better than the system we're in now. It starts in Revelation 21, and the second advent of Christ starts initiates a process that will go directly to the best of all possible worlds. That's what he's talking about here. But according to his not slow but right on schedule promise, and you can depend on him keeping his promises, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now, I'm sure all of us, or at least 99.9% of us, can be impatient at times when we have to wait for something or someone to happen that we're anticipating. But I have noticed as I've gotten older, at one level, my wife would probably say she hadn't seen this yet, but in my mind, at one level, some of that impatience of youth is tempered as we get older because we get enough experience uh, in which we have to wait for things, and then after we get what we've been waiting for, we look back and we realize that period of waiting with anticipation actually energized us and motivated us to do some good things that we might not have otherwise done. And I want to illustrate that uh, talking about the positive value of waiting for a promise to be fulfilled um, and I hate to use myself as a good example from the pulpit um, because there's so, but there are so few opportunities I have, you know, that I can't think of anything good I've done. So I'm going to use myself as a good example here. Uh, last school year, not this school year, last school year, when Debbie finished her ten months uh, August through May schedule, the next day, I mean Thursday, June first of last year. Uh, she got on an airplane and went down to southeast Texas to help her sister, Karen, on a big project she was working on. And we knew it was going to take her se- several weeks to finish all of that. And Michael and Anthony and I were going to Pueblo the third week of June. 
So when she left, we knew it was going to be about a month before we'd see each other, right? So I take her to the airport and um, drop her off on a Thursday afternoon and uh, then drive down back to Duncan and start my life, separated from my wife for a month. Uh, but during that time, I cleaned out our garage. Now, I'm looking at Murray. And I used to think the number one rule around here was don't get Dustin mad at anybody because he can lift the entire weight machine. But after hearing about your martial arts ability, now I think maybe the number one rule under glorify God when possible is don't get Murray mad because I don't want to see you mad at me or anybody else for that matter. It must be a, a, a scary thing. But a- anyway, I cleaned out my garage, Ben. Now I know that sounds like, man, what a wimp. You cleaned out, you're bragging about cleaning out your garage. Well, this was an epic an epic achievement because our, our garage was was so messy that uh, you know we have a two car garage. It was so messy, and it's my ninety nine percent my fault. We could barely squeeze Debbie's vehicle in, and you had to be a very good driver. It's like landing on the moon just to get in and out of the garage in the one vehicle because there was just so much stuff piled around, and some of it was in boxes, but a lot of it's just kind of thrown on top of the boxes and this and that. And it was just a huge thing, and and you know we were kind of embarrassed about it, and it's one of those chores you don't want to do. And the whole four or five months leading up to that summer where she left in June, I kind of kidded her and said, "Hey, you're going to have two months. Whoops! Now you're going to have one month when you get back from Karen's uh, to clean up the garage. You know, I'd give you something to do during your your break, right?" But uh, in, as we got closer to that, I thought, "I'm going to surprise her. I'm going to do this because I hate cleaning the garage. I'm not. I don't do stuff like that very much." So anyway. <laughs> Uh, I literally dropped her off the airport, came back home, got home about 5 o'clock, and started my first of uh, three or four hour evening sessions where I cleaned out our garage. And it was uh, it was not pretty for a lot of that time. But uh, after the first couple of days, I thought, you know what, if I just make enough room so it's easier for her to park a little bit, she'll be so excited, I'll just quit there. But I had this anticipation in my heart, in my head. I thought, I'm going to do this. I'm not going to tell her I'm doing it. I'm going to have the whole garage cleaned out. And then at the end of June, when I drive down there to see my family and see my wife and pick up my wife and drive her back, I'm not going to tell her, even though I'm going to be tempted to tell her. I'm so proud I actually did something. you know. And I just couldn't wait for, after that 490-mile drive back from Groves, Texas, to our garage, I was going to push the button, the garage is going to open, and it's just like magic. The garage is going to be, there's nothing in there except room for cars, you know. So that anticipation kept me going when I wanted to modify or even quit the progress. And it was really, it was a thrill to open the garage. And she said, uh, when we pulled up, uh, she goes, so I, I had to park my car outside because there wasn't room for my car and her car. So she said, where's the car? Like, where's your car? Like she thought somebody had stolen my car because it's usually be outside. But it's in the garage because there's room for both cars now. Uh, I said, just watch this. Open it up. She said, what'd you do with all that stuff? <laughs> I, I think she thought I just threw it all away. And I said, I threw it all away. And she went, what? And I said, no, you know, you throw away a third of it. You give a third of it to Goodwill and you put a third of it in a storage facility, which is what happened. And uh, I think what really capped it off was she just assumed I just piled it in the storage facility where you can find it. But I did it so neatly and it's, you ought to come see it sometime. It's really... <laughs> Pretty nice. But when I say all that, and again, I'm not expecting a medal. I know that's a tiny, relatively insignificant event in the grand scheme of things, but it does illustrate the principle 
that not only are some things worth waiting for, but just the, the waiting, the period of waiting and the anticipation as we wait can motivate us to do things we wouldn't ordinarily do. Uh, we'd rather skip or water down. And I think we see that principle in a superlative sense here as we're talking about God's timing for the day of the Lord, for the climax of human history leading to the whole new universe he's going to bring in, waiting for the climactic phase of God's plan. We'll look at that this morning in these verses. But first let's uh, pray for our uh, military, our peace officers, and our firefighters. But uh, David Stribling, pray for our teachability, please, and then for those who protect and serve, okay? Thanks, David. Yeah, we're going to talk about the value of waiting and to warm up our capacity for abstract thought. Let's think about the uh, value of walking. I found this cartoon. Superman's a little bit chubby there in the midsection, and the doctor says uh, that his annual physical, you need more walking and less flying. So, But here's uh, three advantages of walking. Everyone should take a high-pace aerobic walk every day, and they should always schedule it the first thing in the morning before their brains warm up and tries to talk them out of it. I know Homer does that earlier in the morning before anybody can talk him out of it. On his 70th birthday, my grandfather began walking two miles a day. Today, it is his 71st birthday, and he is somewhere over 700 miles away. We're not sure where he is, but he's in good health. Long walks are good, especially when they're taken by people who annoy you. The overall message of Second Peter is written to believers by a believer is a Christ-centered hope. Anticipation of promises not yet fulfilled but certain to happen should motivate believers. Put your name in the blank. Wendy Powers or uh, Debbie McCoy or Julie Demerson should motivate believers like that now to embrace a lifestyle of holiness, comprehensive being set apart for the Lordship of Christ and to avoid the heresies, the false teachings, doctrinally, morally, of false teachers. Hope is not hoping some of this stuff might happen. It's holding a positive, optimistic perspective based on eager anticipation, expectation of our forever future with Jesus. This is a book written to believers. It's not going to make sense to unbelievers. It's not really for unbelievers. God can use any of his word to convict of the need of salvation but it's really founded on the proposition that uh, you've trusted Jesus for your eternal salvation. Now you need to comprehensively respond to him from your whole heart, even though it looks like the world's winning and uh, bad things happen to good people. And even worse, good things happen to bad people in the status quo. So it's all about the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saves us, but to the one who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, that ungodly person's faith is reckoned as righteousness. That's where you start the adventure based on the work of Christ. Salvation is of the Lord, isn't it, Nicole? And that good is not dependent on you or me, or Dallas Seminary, or Billy Graham. Really good is not based on Billy Graham, isn't it? Yeah, it's a gift uh, to all who will trust him for it. The overall structure of the book is like a big arch. We'll look at that arch next week, Lord willing. Uh, and then a three-story building. Holiness is chapter one. Heresy is chapter two. Hope is chapter three. We're going to finish up the body of the book today and then look at the epilogue, Lord willing, next week. And the body of the book 
uh, chapter 3 says, don't be shocked or surprised by the fact people will make fun of your faith that Jesus is coming back. That's verses 1 through 7. Don't be uncertain of the Lord's ultimate eternal victory. It is coming. Think and live uh, consistently with that. And now today we're going to look at verses 8 through 13. They break down like this. We're going to see two aspects of the timing of the second advent of Christ. And then we're going to see, Natalie, three major effects. These aren't the only effects, but these are three major effects of the second coming of Christ. In verses 10 through 13. So let's look at, oh yeah, one more thing. A quizzical question for you. How is the Apostle Peter in Second Peter like a football coach? What do you think, football player? Well, because you've got spiritual offense, spiritual defense, and special teams there too. Special offense, spiritual offense is like holiness, cultivating uh, a spiritual growth in your life, expressing a godly character. That's what you're supposed to look like. Anything uh, short of that is a spiritual limp. It's not a spiritual walk. And you grow spiritually by embracing God's faithful word. That's what Peter says in Second Peter chapter one. Then we move from spiritual offense to spiritual defense. Heresy, counter pseudo Christian geeks. Beware of the fact of false teachers are not going away, Stan. A lot of people make a lot of money based on peddling false drugs, bad drugs, and bad theology. Be aware of the final doom of false teachers and be aware of the faults of false teachers. That's heresy. That's spiritual defense. And now we're on spiritual special teams here in chapter three. Hope constantly looks to Christ's future return and rest in that. Don't be shocked by future and present mockery of all of this. Don't be uncertain that Jesus is going to win. Now let's look at verses uh, 8 and 9. Two key aspects of the return of Christ. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved fellow believers. I don't expect the world to play by our rules or to believe our uh, supernatural assumptions about reality, but they're missing the boat, that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. Um, in other words, how God relates to and thinks about time is way different than the way we relate to and think about time. And I read uh, a recent commentary that tried to integrate some uh, of uh, Einsteinian physics with some of these statements, and I think he may have pushed it too far but for sure, God doesn't move through sequences of time. God is outside of time. He doesn't think sequentially. It's not like, oh, you know, I never thought about that. Let me change that. You know, he doesn't go, oops, or uh-oh, I meant to do this. He's outside of time. He's not bigger than our categories. And sometimes I think we put him in theological boxes like he's working sequentially in time. Now, he does make himself imminent in the universe, so he's actually participating in time with us, but he's always and ever outside of time. Uh, but let's think about that for a minute. And I think we need to think about the attributes of God for a second, both for verse 8 and verse 9. And to me, man, when I was in high school, I would have loved it if somebody had gotten a pulpit and walked me through the attributes of God. Nobody ever did that. I guess we are supposed to learn it from the hymns or something. You know, we heard about love, and we heard that uh, he was omniscient. But that's about all we ever heard. But at one level, when you're talking about the attributes of God, you have to approach uh, this topic with great reverence and deference because although we can understand God truly, accurately, our understanding is always going to be very limited, Kristen. In fact, I think after a billion years, 
in eternity, you still won't understand God comprehensively. You never will. He's infinite. So you're never going to be bored in heaven for a lot of reasons, but including the fact you're going to learn more and more and more about the greatness and the grace of God. So uh, sometimes when you try to teach something like this, uh, nobody here would say this, I don't think, but some people say, well, you're putting God in a box. Well, I don't put him in a box because you'll notice I leave the bottom of the box open. He's not in a box. You know, he's in a frame. Uh, but, you know, I thought about this, and there are different ways people break this down, but this is the way I like to teach it. So let's walk through the basic characteristics of God. You're going to make us think about God for five minutes in church? Yeah, you're not going to get this at the Rotary Club, folks. And I'm not against the Rotary Club, by the way. Now, Murray, uh, you're an outstanding person. I know you know live is a Swedish word, but most of the people here don't know that. So we're going to use the uh, memory aid to, 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 juniors live, if you want to have a hook to help you remember this. God is true. Does that mean he tells the truth? No, that, that's veracity. God's true, meaning he's real. He's, he's, he's the source of all reality. He's not just really real. He's the source of everything that's real. Okay? Everything. Okay? He's the source of everything. He's true. He's triune. What does that mean? He's complicated. He's personal, mind, will, emotions. And we've got one God who exists in the form of three different persons. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Co-equal, co-eternal. Transcendent. What does that mean? Outside of time and space. In the beginning, God creates the universe. Before that, he was out there perfectly happy. He doesn't need time and space. He doesn't need Billy Graham, Stan Heath, or Brad McCoy to help him either. He doesn't need us. He wants us. That's a whole different thing. So that's the TTT part of the two juniors live, right? He's real, and he's the source of all reality. It's Everything in Scripture, everything in science goes back to God. Triune, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, transcendent, out time, outside of time and space. Then we've got the OOO part. This is my personal favorite part. He's omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent. What does that mean? Omniscient means what? He Science, knowledge, he knows absolutely everything. There's nothing hidden from God's sight, okay? All of your thoughts, my, wills, and emotions are known to God. You're never alone, Okay? Uh, there's an epidemic of teenage suicide because the existential angst of our postmodern culture is convincing them they're alone. Nobody understands them. God understands. We don't have a priest who can't understand us, do we, Blanche? Yeah. In the person of Christ, God has entered the human condition existentially, but he's omniscient. He knows everything. He knows, and there's a, there's a, a kind of sin called sins of omission, and when we think of sins, we're thinking about robbing banks. I know Ben thinks about robbing banks a lot. He's a bank president. He doesn't like bank robbers. Neither do I, you know, for the record. But we tend to think of bad things we do overtly. But when we could do something right and we just don't do it, it's probably a sin for me to leave that garage so messy for two years. And I'm bragging about actually cleaning it up, so that's probably not good either. Uh, yeah, God's omniscient knows everything. Omnipotent, what does that mean? What they used to teach in Sunday school is that means God can do anything. That's false. Sounds heretical, but it's false. God who cannot lie promised long ages ago, Titus says. God can't lie, can't die, can't stop being God. That's what Spurgeon used to say. God can't do everything. He can't lie, can't die, can't drop, stop being God. Can God make a rock so big he himself can't lift it? Clay? 
Can God make a rock so big he himself can't lift it? That is the perfect answer. See, we tell our kids in Sunday school, we, 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 we super simplify it. We don't want a middle school kid to have to think for five minutes. So we super simplify this stuff, and then they go to college, and they can't defend it. Because I heard in Sunday school, God can do anything. So the professor says, hey, we got any Christians here? You guys believe God can do anything? Yep, that's what we heard in Sunday school. Can God make a rock so big he himself can't lift it? Whoops, I guess I'm not a Christian anymore. And we do this kind of stuff. To, we, we, we program them to fail. What's the correct answer? Number one, he's too smart to do that. Number two, it'd be in space, it'd be weightless. Now, he can't make a rock so big he himself can't lift it. You're, omniscience, omnipotence doesn't mean God can do anything. It means there's no finite limit to God's power. God is infinitely powerful. Okay? I can't reproduce that in the lab for you. That's what it means, okay? There's a lot of things God can't do. He can't die, stop being God, break a promise, right? Uh, what's the third O? I'm getting my walking in here. I won't have to go to Simmons Center later. Omnipresent means, even though he's outside of time and space, omnipresent means he's everywhere in time and space all at the same time. He's just as much in your garage, and he's got more room now in my garage than he had before, than he is here. When we go to uh, Israel, Lord willing, next May, we'll go to Jerusalem. According to Orthodox Jews, when you pray to God, anywhere in the world, it's a long-distance call, but when you're at the Wailing Wall, it's a local call. But that's not theologically correct. God is everywhere. He's just as much in your garage or in the golf course as he is in a church building. Okay, So that's the two part there, Dustin. Let's go to the JRS juniors. God is just. He's inherently morally perfect. So the do's and don'ts are not abstract social constructs. They go back to his character. He's uh, he's fair, I should say, for justice. He's righteous. He's inherently morally perfect. And he's sovereign. Among other things, that means God has a plan. He didn't consult me about the plan. He's not going to consult me about his plan. He likes his plan. It gives him the best outcomes with people making real moral choices. And it is fixed from his perspective. It ain't going to change. Okay? He's the boss, and he's the chief, and we's the Indians. Okay? Love. What does that mean? He seeks his creature's highest good, consistent with his highest glory. His immutable. You know what that means? This sounds heretical, too. God has no potential. He's totally actual. Uh, he doesn't change in his character. He doesn't say, oh, I never thought about that before. I never knew that. Look, I didn't think Chris could pull off another year of Super Summer. He knows you're going to. It's going to involve a lot of human uh, uh, responsibility on your part, but you'll do it. You know, I'm, I'm confident. Uh, veracity means everything God affirms in his creation is true. So the ancient Greeks did a lot of great philosophical thinking, right? Socrates, Aristotle, and Plato. But they didn't do a lot of experimental science because if they dug up a fossil and they saw a fish in a rock, they believed in gods who would lie to you and cheat and steal. Maybe it's me. I get near this thing and it goes crazy. So they would pick, they'd say, hey, we know fishes aren't in rocks, throw that away. We don't need that. Just ask Aristotle what everything means, you know? It's Christians that actually came up with experimental science, because we thought if we're seeing stuff in rocks, there's got to be a reason. Had to be underwater. Sedimentary deposits are always underwater, right? So God affirms, everything God affirms is true. 
You can come up with theories that distort the reality, but all the real data goes back to God, not just stuff in science, and scripture, but also stuff in science. And God's eternal as opposed to everlasting life. He's eternal both ways, from everlasting to everlasting. Thou art God. So we're talking about God's uh, eternity here, and as he uh, interacts with time in his creation, we're told that God thinks about time completely differently than we do. He's kind of got his eye on the big picture, the synthetic way it all ends up fitting together. And you think you understand your life, like all 1,700 things Jenny's got to do this week. Well, you're not doing 1,700 things. You're doing a million or billion and 700 things. And God knows all of those things, including every little uh, uh, red blood cell in your body. He knows exactly where they are. He's got them all named. He's got names like Tiny, Pinky. You know, he's got all na- now, I don't know if he's got names. He knows all that stuff. It's just a big thing. Open up your mind for a big conception of God, and suddenly your problems and your ego can actually shrink down a little bit. Okay, So you're just saying, hey, don't be uh, offended by the fact that some people are surprised that some people question the timing of the end or don't even believe in an end times because it hasn't happened for 2,000 years. God's on schedule. He's happy with it. Uh, no problem. Verse 9. So God's perspective on timing uh, is different than ours, and God's purpose for the seeming delay in the coming of Christ isn't because he's forgotten or he's lazy or he's slow on the switch. God's not slow in the sense of any moral defect about the promise of the end times and bringing in the best of all possible universes with no more cancer, child molesters, or wars, uh, as some would count slowness, and the scoffers do. But he's patient toward all y'all, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Let's think about that for a minute. You know, we've got the, the sovereignty of God and his His program, and it's fixed, and it's according to, from that perspective, everything's going to happen, including all the good actions, all the bad actions, who comes to faith, who doesn't come to faith, and that kind of thing. And then you've got real time with people making choices. How does that work? Well, now you're going to really have to think for eight and a half minutes, maybe nine. Let's think about the will of God for a minute. Because you know, people come to pastors all the time and say, uh, I, I want to know what the will of God is. And the will of God apparently is for you not to see this slide. And if you ask me what's God like, I'm going to ramble through those those attributes. And if I'm talking to first grader, I'll dumb it down, you know, to their level. If I'm talking to people who are supposed to be half adults, I'm going to kind of bring it up a level, you know. Uh, when talking about the will of God, it's a complicated concept. It's not easy, okay? Because it's multifaceted, right? Now, you've been married for five years, right? You found out she was a lot more complicated than you thought thought she was, didn't you, Dustin? And I can guarantee you, David knows that about Julie. You know, because you figure it out. You you never you never arrived, do you, Ben? It's a moving target. <laughs> it's a big hill to climb, brother. It's not easy. But watch this. You got five aspects of the will of God. Let's talk to these uh, synthetically for a second. The first one is like a big umbrella. It's outside of time. Sometimes it's called the sovereign will of God. Sometimes it's called the secret will of God, or the decree, the decision about what God wanted everything to look like. It's His call. It goes back to eternity, and that's always there. Okay, that's everything that actually happens in time it goes back to God's decree. I mean. Good, bad, spiritual, physical, 
carnal, uh, holy, uh, large, small, sports, science, education, home, church, everything that happens is part of God's decretive will, his overall plan. Everything that happens in time according to his pretemporal uh, decision. This is what history is going to, reality is going to look like. Okay? So you always are working with that, and scripture refers to that at times, and that's important to remember. But the others of these aspects of the will of God are what's happening in time that we need to deal with. And when you understand these categories, it can really make you understand the Bible better and understand yourself better. The first of those aspects of the will of God in time is what theologians call the preceptive will of God. Now don't let these big words scare you. A precept is just a command or a principle. All right? Talk about the precepts of Scripture or love your wife like Christ loved the church. That's that's a precept of Scripture. What is Sydney's? What is God's preceptive will for Sydney Powers? Re, um, Wendy. Well, at big picture, he's supposed to love Wendy like Christ loved the church. Okay. Now, of course, that's different than what Mike's got. What is the God's preceptive will for Mike via uh, his wife Jan? It's really the same thing. It's going to look different in specifics, but we got a general precept there. So the preceptive will of God would be what God wants to happen, what he desires to happen as an expression of his character as described in his commands and his precepts. So in general, what is God's preceptive will about murder? About murder. Don't do it. Is it possible for people to commit murder? Do murders ever happen in this world? You know, everything that happens is part of God's decretive will, when you have things that happen in time that violate his preceptive will, not his decree, but his desire, let's call that his permissive will. So you you always have those two working together. I mean, when it comes to murder, theft, adultery, uh, rape, lying, uh, that kind of thing, we have very clear precepts about that in Scripture. Not supposed to do that, not supposed to get anywhere near those things. But they do happen. So the preceptive will of God, sometimes called the moral will of God, that might be easier uh, to remember. This is the moral will of God. It's always God's will for Christians not to commit murder, not to commit sexual uh, sin. Did David, who's a believer, he's going to be the vice, re- vice regent of the Messiah in the millennium, so we know he's a believer. Did he commit murder? Did he commit sexual sin? Yeah. Is that part of God's decretive will? Yeah, it sure is. Everything that happens is part of God's decretive will. So that's a trick question. You thought I was still in another category. Is it, was it God's preceptive will for David or anybody to commit murder? Believe or unbelieve, for that matter. Was it part of God's uh, permissive will? Yeah, he'll permit you to do that. Now he could have created a universe where every time an atheist wrote a blasphemous statement, the pen would blow up and his hand would blow off. You could do that. You can put certain kinds of animals in cages. Psychologists have done this. They're very evil people, you know, these psychologists. And they'll put electronic impulses on animals, and every time they go a certain way, they'll, you'll shock them, and you can train them to stay on one side of the cage. But that's not a area where people are making real choices. They're being forced. It's called behavior modification to an extreme. So God is not doing extreme behavior modification. He gives us his preceptive will, his moral will, what he wants to happen. But watch this. 
What he desires, wants to happen in that sense, is different than what he decrees, and it's something he permits. God permits but does not promote evil. God's not morally responsible for David's adultery or murder or for any sin that I commit or you commit. A big part of this is realizing that God's moral relationship with everything that's good in his program, in his decree, is different than his moral relationship to everything that's bad. According to Scripture, God deserves praise for all good that happens, including people getting saved. According to God's uh, reality in Scripture, taught by Jesus, creatures deserve blame for all evil. Okay, Everyone who believes was elect. Everyone, but the scripture never talks about the non-elect. It talks about unbelievers. I mean, the Lord Jesus says on the last week on in Jerusalem, and we'll see this scenic overlook when we go from Mount Scopus to Mount uh, of Olives in our bus, and we'll look into look at Jerusalem for the first time. It's an awesome thing when you go over there. Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I wanted to call you to myself like a mother hen calls her chicks. But... You were not willing. He's literally saying, I wanted you, but you didn't want me. Well, that means he's not sovereign. No, it doesn't. God didn't want David to commit adultery either, but he allowed him to, right? So that's pretty important to see that distinction. It's not a uh, symmetrical relationship, God's relationship between good and evil, okay? So we're looking through these aspects of the will of God, and so I can tell you what, Peter is saying, I think, in verse 9, we've got a decreed will outside of time. It's a secret, eternal, uh, sovereign purpose. In time, he gives us his preceptive will, what he wants us to be as people based on his precepts and commands and scriptures. His permissive will, that's where he permits but doesn't promote things that happen contrary to his preceptive will. Then we've got his directive will. This is the specific will God has for Dustin Wiley as opposed to Mike Palavik. I like to think of Murray, you know, it's kind of like this. Think of your life, uh, think of an easel, and you've got this big piece of canvas. And you probably have a bigger piece of canvas than I've got, because you've got a lot more potential than I've got. <laughs> Just so you'll know. And he also gives you a palette of colors, and you've got about 75 colors, and I've got like two. I'm colorblind. I'm black and white. That's all I can see. But watch this. So using that analogy, you know, got all these paints, right? Now, as we keep our paint on the canvas, you know, Shauna keeps her paints on this canvas God's given her. That's following God's preceptive will and ultimately his directive will for her. She's going to have a much better picture. She's a wonderful artist than I could ever draw. She's got more colors and more talents. Now, God will allow you, Natalie, to take your paints and just throw it against the wall as opposed to the canvas. But that would be his permissive will. You can do that if you want to. You can waste your life if you want to. A lot of people waste their lives, don't they? And all kinds of bad things. And God will let you do that. But we're not going to blame him for that, okay? So we've got God's precept, his moral will, his permissive will. He'll allow you to break the rules if you want to. His directive will is more than just obeying the rules, but finding exactly what he wants you to do. And I came up with an analogy I know Ron will appreciate, you know, and I'm not uh, trying to be falsely humble. God gave Billy Graham a whole lot more talent, gifting, opportunities than Brad McCoy's getting or has been given, right? 
So rather than trying to be a bad Billy Graham, I'm trying to be the best imitation of me I can be. But you may have heard of Ronnie Miller and Johnny Miller. Johnny Miller was a famous golfer who won the 1973 U.S. Open by shooting 63 in the last round, then three years later won the British Open. But he's mainly known for being a sarcastic golf commentator. And in fact, Paul Azinger, who was an evangelical Christian once, had Johnny Miller, the commentator, say some bad things about his golf swing. And Paul went to the... uh, uh, sports writer after the round and said, Johnny Miller is the biggest moron in TV golf. And he got a lot of blowback for that. So the next day Paul said, no, I didn't say that. I didn't say that. I didn't say he's the biggest moron. I said he's the biggest Mormon because Johnny's a Mormon. Mormon. Because he was kidding. He did say he was the biggest moron. But, uh, yeah, I mean, Johnny Miller is pretty famous, but Ronnie Miller, he's much more famous than Johnny Miller. I mean, uh, God gives us different potential, uh, and the fun of the Christian life is figuring out his directive will and then pursuing it. And then the final aspect of the will of God is the providential will of God, Romans 8.28. What does Romans 8.28 say? All things work together for good because God's got a plan and it's flat going to work. And he's happy with the plan. And it involves black tiles in the mosaic. But that's not on him, that's on us, right? Whether we, you know, how we respond to his perceptive will. But the point is, there's a, watch this, before we go back to verse 9. In King David's life, uh, there's a difference between God's perceptive will, don't murder, don't commit adultery, and his permissive will. God, in fact, although he has a decree, has desires expressed in his precepts that are different than his decree. God, in his decree, permits David to commit adultery, but he finds no joy in that. Now watch this. Ezekiel, we don't go to Ezekiel very often, do we? This is Yahweh, God, saying in Ezekiel chapter 18, Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked? says the Lord God, rather than that he should turn from his ways and live. And then to be even more specific, in the same way, God does not desire David to commit adultery or murder, but he permits it and it fits into the plan providentially so he ends up exactly where he wants us all to be in the end, right? And then in Ezekiel 30, 18, 32, Yahweh, the Lord of salvation, uh, the God, says, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God, therefore repent and live. And you know, that's Old Testament, doesn't count. Yeah. Paul in 1 Timothy 2 4 says God desires all to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. But that doesn't mean they all do come to salvation, does it? It's more complicated than that. But there's a difference between what God decrees and what God desires. God's not slow about his promise on the trigger trying to make the end of the uh, history come. His apparent delay is to give more opportunity for more people to hear and respond to the gospel, which doesn't mean everybody's going to come. But at one level, just like God doesn't want anybody to commit adultery, he wants everyone to come to faith. He has desires he has not decreed. Chew on that for a while, and it will kind of make your conception of God a little bit bigger, I think. Two aspects of the timing of the second advent. God's perspective on timing is different than ours. God's purpose for the timing isn't laziness or slackness, but a desire to give more people a chance for salvation. Now let's look at three key effects as we close in verses 10 through 13. First key effect of the second coming 
in the outplaying of the events of God's final program uh, is that Christ's return will eventually lead to the destruction of the present universe. We'll show you what that looks like in a second here. Look at verse 10. But the day of the Lord, when God visibly, undeniably intervenes in human history, there'll be no more atheists anymore. There'll be rejectors and believers, but nobody on the fence be impossible to in the end times. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, unannounced, you know, surprise everybody. Thieves don't make an appointment with you, right? They come when you don't expect them. In which the heavens will pass away, ultimately with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. People talk about the big bang, I call this the big boom, and it comes on at the end of God's uh, program for history. Let's put that on our chart we've been using. Yeah, this is not drawn to scale, but here we are in the latter phases of the church age. And in the same way, Murray, that the Old Testament prophets talked about the Messiah in two different aspects, lamb, lion, suffering, sovereign. The New Testament talks about two phases of the second coming. First, Christ coming in the air for his church that begins the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord there is not a 24-hour day, it's a period of direct, direct divine intervention. And then the second aspect of the return of Christ is the literal second advent. But watch this. Uh, we have the, the tribulation climaxing by the second coming. We have the kingdom of Christ. And then we go to a whole new universe after the present universe, all time, space, physics, goes away. It's going to be burned up. It's all going to be destroyed. The earth and its works will be burned up. That kind of thing. Look at the second key effect of the return of Christ and all that it triggers, verses 11 and 12. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, they're not permanent. Cadillacs all end up in junkyards sooner or later. What sort of people are you, and he's talking to believers, not unbelievers, to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for, and then the, most of the English translations say hastening, but that a Greek word can mean reveling in, and I think it makes more sense than just repeating himself, looking for expectantly, looking forward to Debbie getting to see that clean garage, but help me continue to clean the garage when I wanted to stop. Looking for and reveling in, before it happens, Ray, the coming of the Lord, coming of the day of God, because of which all the present universe will be destroyed and replaced with something much better with what we're really designed for. So it doesn't make a lot of sense to worship your toys when all that stuff is temporary, right? Foolish to live for stuff when you can't take it with you, and it doesn't really mean that much anyway. The third key effect, look at verse 13, after we say that Christ's return will lead to the destruction of the present universe. His return, knowing, anticipating it, can change our universe the way we prioritize things now. Look at verse 13. Christ's return and all that follows it will lead to a whole new universe. But according to his promise, if he promises it, it will happen in his timing. We're looking for, we're reveling in, we're anticipating, we're living now with priorities of kind of like we are eventually going to live in a new heaven and new earth and Rick Buchanan will be there 24-7 with Carla and with Brad. And with Aaron and Kimberly and the grandkids and everything he missed, we more than made up for in all eternity. That's got to be true based on what we know about God, and that's what it's saying here. That's what that means. Cheer up. You know, it's going to get worse. (laughs) And it's going to get a whole lot better, right? 
According to his promise, this isn't the Southern Baptist Church or Dallas Seminary telling you this, this is the promise of God and Jesus Christ. We're looking for, we're reveling in, we're anticipating a whole new heaven and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Evil will have been permitted. Evil will have been defeated. Evil will be quarantined. And you think you're like Dustin now? Just wait till you see him without a sin nature. He's really going to be great. And we won't have to be, you know, walking around on eggshells around Murray anymore. In fact, he gets mad at us and starts, just, your hands are a weapon, right? With or without a Bible in his hands, he's dangerous. Now, what are we talking about there? Go to the back of the Bible. We've said this several times in Second John. Uh, Revelation 21. I'm telling you. If the book of Revelation intimidates you, just focus on the first three chapters and the last two chapters. And then get somebody like me and we can tell you what the rest of it means. <laughs> but uh, we've got so much to look forward to. And the older I get, the more I look forward to it, which is a good thing. Because I'm probably, yeah, I wanted to be a male model, and that never worked out. <laughs> then I wanted to be uh, like an NBA all-star. That's not probably not going to happen. Then I thought about professional wrestling. And, you know, all these things I want to do aren't going to happen, you know. But I haven't had a midlife crisis or an old life crisis because I'm looking forward to so much more. Uh, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven, first earth passed away. How's that going to happen? Well, the Lord will come like a thief. Heavens will pass away the roar. Elements will be destroyed in intense heat, right? All these things are going to be destroyed. So be cheer up. It's going to get worse, but we're going to get to the perfect universe. And all these things we regret or that we've missed aren't going to be missed. They're all going to be made up. Uh, when people leave us too early with them, we're going to miss that, going to miss that. They're going to miss that. They're going to get much more than that. Everything that you think, you know, I, I remember at Christmas time, we, you know, we, we came here in December, right after Christmas, 30 years ago, and which was good because our, our policy had always been, no matter where we lived, we'd drive to uh, Beaumont, Texas to spend Christmas with the rest of our families. So I had a year for, because most, most preachers have to work on religious holidays. But around here, I work Thanksgiving and James works Christmas. That's just the way we divide the labor. But that first year, they had 12 months to get used to the fact that next Christmas, God's not going to be here Christmas weekend. He's going to go to Texas, you know, to see his family. And I remember some people uh, used to go, well, you know, I wish I had my family is all dead and I can't go to my family like you two at Christmas or, you know, for whatever reasons, we're a strength or whatever, we can't go and be with our family at Christmas. And you guys are so blessed you could go see your family at Christmas. I thought, yeah, that's true, but you ought to see what it's like after about two days. I mean, my sisters are mad at each other. My mother's mad at me. Dot's not happy about something I said. It's kind of like, you know, there's people who don't have a family to go to. They don't have it all that bad necessarily, you know. I mean, we idealize stuff. But in the new heaven and new earth, you'll get all these connections without all of the nonsense. You can have a family reunion with no stress, planning before, during, and after. You can have a wedding, you know, during the millennium with no stress, you know. I mean, I've done a lot of weddings, and some of them are very, very stressful. It's unbelievable. And that's just the rehearsal. It's, I mean, it gets really bad the next day. We've got so much to look forward to, man. We ought to cheer up. I love this. When uh, in, in that same passage of Revelation, he says, "It is done." If God was all powerful, he'd want it, he'd be able to defeat evil. If God was all good, he'd want to defeat evil, right, Jack? That's the first thing you're going to throw at you in, in philosophy class. But evil isn't defeated, so there is no all good, all powerful God, right? False. You got a, a, a illegitimate time limit there. Because God is all powerful, he can. Because God's all loving, he will. Hasn't yet, so it's got to be coming. 
when his purposes for preventing all this stuff are completed, then it's going to come. You read about Revelation 21, 22, which is why after that, saw a new heaven, new earth, and then he says, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. What's Alpha? First letter in the Greek alphabet. What's Omega? Last letter in the Greek alphabet. The beginning. What's the beginning? It's the beginning of the universe. What's the ending? He said, I'm it. I'm, I'm that thing. I'm the one that created everything. I'm going to consummate everything. And when we're done, believers are really, really going to like it. You think if some young believer dies at a young age or gets martyred or something like that, and they miss so much. They missed a lot in that little speck called history. They're going to be, it's all going to be more than made up for all eternity. Which doesn't mean have a moral complex. I, listen, to me, uh, you know, roughing it is staying in a holiday inn with a black and white TV set. I'm not the world's toughest guy in the world either. But we've got so much to look forward to. So take this to heart. The return of Christ is one of those things that's not only worth waiting for, it's designed to give us an anticipation so that, as he says, and we'll start here next week, therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, just sit around and wait for it to end, right? No. Get, look busy. Be busy. Be diligent to be found by him. Nobody else may notice, but he will. In peace, get along with other people, spotless and blameless. Wow. Out of this world motivation to live a world-class Christian life right there in Second Peter. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, move this truth from our heads to our hearts and just fill our hearts with joy in who and what Jesus is, what he has done, what he has promised us, and all we have to look forward to. Even though we're in a tough slog now, man, we are climbing hills and facing opposition that's very, very difficult and painful, and we don't want to minimize the difficulties and the stresses and the, and the, uh, the pressures that people feel, even as I feel some. But help us to frame that in uh, a human, not, not a human viewpoint frame, but a divine viewpoint frame where we can really, really, really be looking forward to some of these things you've promised us, knowing that whatever we're anticipating, it'll be only infin- infinitely better. But help us to cheer up and lighten up a little bit and realize you've got this, you know where history's headed, and you're going to bring the end time exactly on schedule and the world may scoff at it or think we're crazy for believing it, but it's, it's the real deal. And it's all about the greatness of Jesus Christ and his lordship. Motivate us to submit to that with joy and with a complete holiness. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.